Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 102. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have our first two-time guest of the podcast, Robert Drysdale, great friend of mine. He was here on episode 9, titled Define Your Success back in 2018, and Robert is the co-founder of Zenith BJJ Association, one of the biggest associations in the world all over the globe. He is a black belt world champion and absolute ADCC world champion. For the past three years, Robert has been serving as the executive producer of the documentary film Close Guard, The Origins of Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil, due for release in the summer of 2020. So I wanted this episode to be very informative so you and I can keep learning more about the history of Jiu-Jitsu from people who are actually researching the topic. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you, as you already know, I share my final thoughts with my takeaway after the interview. However, this time I didn't feel that was necessary to have one. And I started to think too, since I've done 101 episodes with the same format, it's time to explore and add new topics to the podcast. I don't know what, but I'll test it out. If you'd like to send me some feedback, I'm on Instagram at Gustavo Dantas BJJ and Gustavo Dantas on YouTube. Here is Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message, then Robert Drysdale, who's the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Robert Drysdale. Robert is our first two-time guest of the podcast who last appeared with us on episode nine in 2018. Robert is a multiple-time world champion and the owner of Drysdale Jiu-Jitsu in Las Vegas and is the co-founder of the Zenith BJJ Association. For the past three years, Robert has been serving as the executive producer of the documentary film Close Guard, The Origins of Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil, due for release in the summer of 2020. And today we have a, a unique episode, the conversations about the history of Jiu-Jitsu. So Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Gustavo. It's a, it's a clever, uh, uh, privilege. It's an honor. I can't believe it's been 2018 was the last time we spoke. That was, it seems like six months ago, but that's... I, I know, because what well, we did... Yeah, and we did the interview in Portuguese too. So, but you know, it's uh, yeah. I'm super curious about man. It's an incredible journey to be able to to see all that. So basically, what I, I want to know today is yeah, you're gonna share. We're gonna teach us some jujitsu history, and 
share your experience. So first, let's just see like when the spark came the first time, like, man, I want to know more about it. You know, when was the moment? Uh, I think it's, I mean, I mean, there was, there was a particular moment I remember well. As, as you know, in Brazil, very few schools have a picture of Carlos or Helio or both on the wall. Maybe some, but not many. But in the U.S., it's pretty common. So about three years ago, one of my students asked me, like, why don't you have a picture of Carlos and Helio on the wall? And it wasn't prejudice against them, but I, it was more because I didn't know the history. Like, I knew it from what I had read on magazines and the Internet. But, you know, you, you learn to be skeptic of these things. Because, you know, you're, you're hearing the same version over and over. That's rarely the case in history where there's only one account and that account is the accurate one, right? But I, it didn't put me on this journey of like, I'm going to look into this. And I remember that a few years back, I was at a friend's house in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, um, actually Spring Hill, Tennessee, uh, Ray Casillas. And he had a book on his shelf called Shocky by Roberto Pedrera. Mm-hmm. And I remember going through the book and I'm like, man, I had no idea that there was such a comprehensive study on the history of jujitsu. And why has no one ever heard of this? And I'd ask people about it. No one had ever heard of it. I had never heard a thing about it, but it was, you could see it was very well documented. It was very academically oriented. And, and I'm like, man, this is really cool. I should read this one of these days. So after my, my student questioned me, I went on Amazon and I bought a copy. I also bought a copy of a book called Gio Mori Guajion Samurai by Marcial Serrano, available only in Portuguese. And I read these books. And I noticed that they were a lot, using a lot of the same sources that more or less led to the Brazilian National Library. And basically what had happened in 2012, the Brazilian National Library digitized all their files. So before 2012, there's a reason why you'd never heard a thing about the history. Got it. It's because it was all oral tradition. And every single account basically went back to Carlos Gracie. Everything we knew about the early days of Maeda, BJJ history, you know, it, it all went back to Carlos Gracie, right? Until 2012. So in 2012, we have what we call like a renaissance of research. Like all these researchers, historians start looking into this because now we have access to all these files. And the story that was coming across was one that was very different from the one that we had been told. Now, it wasn't that Carlos and Helio were not present in the story. They're certainly central. But, you know, what, what you learn in history is that history is very rarely linear. It doesn't go, the history of Gustavo Dantas does not go, you know, Rio de Janeiro, Las Vegas, Arizona, end of story. Like, Gustavo is more complex than that. Gustavo has many people in his life. Gustavo has had many competitions, many experiences as a business owner, uh, as an entrepreneur, as a competitor. And the combination of all these experiences makes Gustavo. So what I wanted to answer was, like, why Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? Why, why not Argentinian jiu-jitsu? Why and what is it that we, we practice and why is it the way it is? You know, and we wanted to like basically tell the history of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And you could get that from reading books like Shaki and Gio Mori, Guajion Samurai. But you know, we, we understand that most people aren't going to be reading a lot of books, especially if they're very heavily you know, written and very academically oriented. They're not fun reads because they don't read like a novel. They read, they're cataloging information, basically, like chronologically. So it's a heavy read. It's not always fun for the average reader. But we wanted to create a bridge between the, the, this work that was coming about since 2012 and, you know, the, the public. We wanted to create a link, you know. So we want to introduce, you know, the BJJ practitioner or the martial arts enthusiast in general to a new view on how martial arts developed in Brazil from the, 
the Kodokan mothership, because there's no way out of this. What we do is, what we practice is a variation of Kodokan Judo. In fact, and like recently, I've been calling it Brazilian Judo, because it's a more appropriate term. What we practice is not Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu is an archaic term. Uh, has no, very little to do with what we practice. What we practice is just a variant of Judo. It's Niwaza, basically, right? And we wanted to tell this story as accurately as we could and, you know, as fairly as we could. And, you know, I've always had like a soft spot in my heart for like the underdog. You know, I, I've said this before, like to me, the, the, the American Revolution, the, the militias are far more interesting than George Washington. You know, George Washington got all the credit, but like the militias, there's a lot of research to show the militias were actually doing most of the winning. George Washington was like, he was existing on fighting in European-like formations and he couldn't keep up with the Brits because the Brits were just better at European-like formations, right? So George Washington was not faring that well in battlefield, but the militias were really the ones doing the, the, the winning, right? So they played a far more important role than they were given credit for. So that's my approach to history. I've always liked that. Like Howard Zinn has always been a, a hero of mine, the, the people's history of the United States, uh, because it's, it's history from the bottom up. It's the history from, what, what about black history? What about Native American history? Like what is their version of events? Right. Instead of having that top down, we won, we get to tell history. What about telling history from the bottom up? You know, and that was sort of like the mindset moving into, you know, putting close guard the film together. And, you know, we really wanted to be accurate. We wanted to be fair and we wanted to be unbiased. And we wanted to give all angles their side on how BJJ is possible. And what we find, it's not a linear story. It's a bushy story. It's a bush. History is a bush. It's not a line. It's this right here everything is entangled, you know, like all these different events and they're all influencing other events that influence other events that lead back to that original event. And there's so many components to this story that it became like a monumental task to tell all of this in 90 minutes. And that's kind of why we're taking longer than expected because we want, we, we believe that this film will be archival and it's going to be the, 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 hit, the film that's going to be referenced every time someone talks about the history of jujitsu moving forward. So we can't make any mistakes and we're being very careful, but it's not easy. It's a lot of work, you know. Man, I can't imagine. How many hours of footage do you guys have? I think we have something like total between B-roll and A-roll, about 40,000 gigabytes. Man, I cannot even imagine like how deep this, this whole process is. So my next question is, what was the first action? Because I don't care. Like, I think that's when your competitor mind comes in. Like, you know, when you wanted to become a black belt world champion, well, it's in the top of that mountain right there. So we're going to start climbing right now. What was the first step for the documentary? Cause you still climbing cause you're not, not done yet. You know what I mean? You, you're getting close to the end of the, the climb. So what was the first action? They're like, all right, game on. Man, I, I, I started writing all these historians. <laughs> I started writing them. Uh, I, I found one of them, Jose Cairos Tufi, through Annette Stack. Uh, I, I don't remember who told me that Annette knew him. So I wrote her, and she gave me his email. And he had written his PhD dissertation on the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, namely, like that, anyways, I think his, 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 uh, his dissertation is The Gracie Clan, The Making of Brazilian Nationalism. It's available online. You guys can look. It's great. You know, and he actually wrote it before the digitizing of the files, which is the hard way to do it. You know, like he, wow. what he do is truly heroic because like the, the files are now like, like a Google search engine. So it's fairly simple to, to do this research. Whereas before it was all hand, you know, like you have to go to the, the, the physical files. 
And, and then I wrote Marcial Sejano, I wrote Pedrera, and I started writing these guys, and I started like, you know, like, you know, this is a great story. Thank you, you guys changed my mind on how I saw BJJ history. And, you know, they, they knew who I was as a competitor, and we, we began an exchange, and, you know, one idea led to the other. And then when I was gonna be uh, visiting my family in Brazil, and I wrote Marcial Sejano, who wrote Gio Mori, and I go, hey man, I'm gonna be in Sao Paulo, I'd love to meet you. And then he goes, he's, he's, he's older, he's in his 70s, like, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm tired, you know, I'm retired. And, but if you want to talk about the history of BJJ, I have a friend of mine who's actually more active than I am in research, his name is Fabio Takao. And he would meet you, he's going to be in the area and he would, you know, he'd sit down with you. So I sit down with Fabio and it was like, it was kind of like a happy coincidence that we both had the same idea at the same time of making a documentary. Because Fabio also understood that people weren't going to do this research on their own. They're going to read our 8,000 pages of jiu-jitsu history. But a documentary film was going to be the way to tell this story. Because we knew that the story, as it had been told, was inaccurate. So we wanted to, you know, the film would be the perfect, you know, basically like an introduction to the history of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? And we became friends right away. We got along. We had the same vision. We reached some of the same conclusions. Even though Fabio had studied it far longer than I have, like he... He's been on this role for 10, 15 years. Like I'm fairly, you know, I kind of parachuted into the research community. There's a community of researchers in Brazil and, and I kind of like parachuted into this story. And I always say that my role is not really being a, a researcher. Like there's plenty of research done. I'm not really a filmmaker either. They're much better filmmakers. Uh, I don't have the money to make this either, but I was able to bring the filmmakers, bring the researchers and raise the money. So I'm kind of like in the middle of nice. But, um, it's, and that, that was it. And we started research, the funding, you know, we, I wrote a business plan and I was working for ACB at the time. They were doing events like every month and I was flying all over the world commentating for them. And I pitched the idea to ACB, Meyerbeck Kassiv. I met with them in, in Chechnya. I flew all the way out. There was a crazy trip. I went Vegas, Chicago, Chicago, Qatar, where the show was, Qatar, Moscow, Moscow, Grozny. Grozny, Moscow, Moscow, Beijing, Beijing, Las Vegas. I did that in five days. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was in Grozny for like a few hours, just long enough to present the plan. And Meyerbeck was very welcoming to the story. He was, you know, he's a jiu-jitsu aficionado. And he just, he, he fell in love. With, he, I didn't even finish my presentation. He goes, how much do you need? And I went X amount. And he goes like this, I'll give you more. He gave me more than I asked for. Nice. This is where, like, I, 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 there's a thing about me, Gustav. I, I can't shut up sometimes. I don't know when to stop talking. <laughs> uh, moments, you know, like, as soon as I'm done with the presentation and he agrees to give me the money, I go, like, you know, there's, there's a good chance I'm not going to be able to pay you back. Right. Because, as you know, most documentaries are in the hole. They don't, they're not profitable. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. Of documentaries are not profitable. And I don't know why. I, I, it was just, it just came out, you know. Like, as soon as I said it, I'm like, shut up, Robert. <laughs> there's a <laughs> Shut up. This is it. <laughs> and then uh, I, I, there's a good chance I can't pay you back because there's a chance we don't make this money back, right? And then he goes like this, his words, it's okay as long as you tell the truth, you know? And that's when I was like, that's my kind of guy because there's, there's a value in truth, you know? It's not all about the clicks. It's not all about the likes and the algorithms. It's not all about popularity and money. It's, there has to be a north in life that goes beyond just, you know, just doing what is immediately rewarding. You know, and here's a man who's, who's wealthy, you know, and, but like he was more concerned with the truth and truth telling than he was with making his money back. You know, I think that that was, that was a noble thing for him to do, especially because, you know, he doesn't have a dog in the fight. It's really something for the BJJ community. And, you know, um, and that's kind of how we walked into this. You know, we found a crew in Virginia of very talented filmmakers. 
uh, Jay Coleman, uh, Steve and Daniel Jeter, um, very talented filmmakers. And they, they, they handle like, you know, cause I have no experience in this. So it was, it was more of a learning experience. I had, it has been over the last three years, I've learned a lot about it. And, but, you know, I was just kind of in position to be in the middle and put all these pieces together. Not really, I'm not the, you know, the most knowledgeable researcher. I don't know a thing about film. I don't have that kind of money, but, you know, I, could piece, I, I was able to piece it together. So let's talk about the chapter in Japan, about how was your trip. So what did you say that was, from the get-go, was like the biggest misconception that you, you figured out, like, oh, okay, that doesn't uh, sound right at all you know to what i've been listening let's put this way um well the first one was that we weren't doing we weren't doing jujitsu we were doing judo and the japanese mm -hmm. always knew this when when hoist gracie and and, and hickson gracie blew up in the mma scene in the, in the mid 90s the japanese are like oh that's great but why are you calling it jujitsu when it's clearly judo <laughs> they were confused you know because to them it was obvious that it was judo but to me like the first thing that jumped few things that jumped at me like you know learning more about the story and then visiting Japan is that there had no, been no technical revolution in, in, in Brazil up to the mid-90s. The technical revolution in Brazil started in the mid-90s after the inception of IBJJF slash CBJJ in 94. Up to then, and I've, sent, I've, given, I've made this challenge to many people who disagree with me and they can't give me an answer. Find me a move that was done in Brazil in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and up to the early 90s that is not in any, any judo book. In and then if you get Colson Judo, then you get very sophisticated. Now we're talking De La Hiva, X-Guard, Bravo Choke, Bearing Bolos. We're talking a very sophisticated ground scene that existed in Japan, but that dies out because Jigoro Kano makes a mistake. My view of Jigoro Kano is that as shrewd as he was, as influential as he was, as intelligent as he was, as a visionary, and, a, and I think he actually had a philosophical approach to martial arts that many people didn't have at the time. He's a genius in many ways. But my honest opinion is that he didn't understand fighting. He wasn't a good fighter. He just didn't understand. Because if you understand fighting, you don't limit the ground to begin with. And if, you if you're making an argument for self-defense, you don't want to throw people. You want to punch and run. So if your argument is for self-defense, boxing is a better style. So you can't make a case that I'm going to grab you and throw you and then grab another opponent, throw another opponent. That's not a very intelligent approach to self-defense, if you ask me. If you're talking about pure grappling, like why would you limit the ground? Right. And you, there's a, there's a, there is an effort to limit the ground there. I suspect because he wasn't very good at it. He was less familiar with it. And that's not unusual. I don't like heel hooks. Well, because you're not good at it. I don't like takedown. Well, because you're not good at takedowns. If you, if you're, if you love bearing bowls, it's because you're good at them. And that's why you think that they're so important, right? People always lean towards their preferences. This is natural. Every instructor leans towards the moves that they like and whatever they don't know is should be illegal is dangerous it's not real jujitsu and so on right and i think jigoro kano falls victim to this mentality at some point because he he, he has this prejudice against the ground and it was due to insistence from other practitioners that he kept some ground in judo and it was that somewhat of the groundwork in judo that was left that from which Brazilian jiu-jitsu was born Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is allowed to exist in the, in the void, in the vacuum created by the Kodokan rule set. Um, and like that was a shock. Like that, there had been no technical revolution in Brazil. The revolution had taken place in Japan years before. In 94, with the competition scene, and you're very familiar with this scene because those were your competition years, that's when the revolution began. That's when the De La Hiva, 
became more sophisticated in the Kosen Judo de la Hiva. That's when our X guard became more sophisticated at anything the Japanese were doing and our half guard. And later it got more and more sophisticated to the point where Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is no longer a sub-style of Judo. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a, a style in itself. But, you know, I think that, I, you know, Pedrera is like one is like, Jiu-Jitsu is a sub-style of Judo. That's what he says. And I'm like, I would agree with them up to recently, up to the early 2000s. Yes, it was a variation of Judo. It's drifted too far apart. I see more similarities between Taekwondo and Karate than I see between Judo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu today. But it's a matter of opinion at that point. But, you know, I, as far as the technical revolution that allegedly took place in Brazil and the reinventing of techniques, it's just not true. I mean, you can watch him. And, you know, Helio is a judoka. He's a judoka. He's just not very good at it. So he fo they focus on the ground. And then they get better on the ground because they focus on it. But as far as technical innovation, show me something that even someone like Hickson was doing during his career that is not in every judo book on the planet. Yes, I um you had an opportunity to talk with Pedro Valente too. I went there a few months ago. And then that's something that he was sharing, showing his uh, the museum at the academy. And he was saying that and he was showing some of the, the pictures of some of the classes. He was like, Man, you look at it, say like, wow, that's a jujitsu class. You know what I mean? See so many people there. And a lot of the moves that they're being done before jujitsu, even well, or judo hit Brazil way before that, they already had so many things you know and what was i know that i don't think it was i think judo by that point was i think it already hit brazil but i know that with the olympics the creator of the olympics that you know a lot of the changes happened during that time right that's well as as judo becomes an olympic sport then that's when they that the korokan rules because the role korokan rule set is changing it's it's like any rule set any young sport it's changing over time it's still changing like ibjjf changes the rule set every year and by the time judo becomes an Olympic sport, they, they have pretty much what we have today. It's largely formed. I mean, there have been modifications over time. But you notice that they eliminate a lot. They eliminate wrist locks. They eliminate foot locks. They eliminate shoulder locks. They eliminate later on the single and the double. So they begin to create a style because by elimination, they create a style that's very, you know, once again, leaning towards what the, the, the founders or the people who are ahead of the rule set at that point were familiar with. Because had they were, if they were great at singles and doubles, they would not ban it. It's because they weren't good at it. They were losing the wrestlers in competition. Good point. You know, and, and I mean, everyone has blind spots. So, you know, as important as Kodokan has been for martial arts in general, not just judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I mean, they had their blind spots too. And it's just natural that, you know, that some, some mistakes were making. My, my, my opinion, some people might disagree and they, they think that judo is better off with no ground. And it's an opinion. We all have our, you know, our, our views of, 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 on, on martial arts. But, you know, uh, judo is, is, is the father of martial arts. Like, it's, there's, you can't take credit from that. You know, that's, you got to keep in mind, like, our idea of martial arts as a system of education is straight from judo. You know, this is not something that existed before that. Like, why would you want to teach martial, like martial from war, combat to children? Like, why would you, children are useless in war. Why would you want to train them in warfare, right? Because your girl Kano sees something in children. You see, like, these are the future of humanity. If you train good, healthy citizens, we will have a better world in the future. And they, and interestingly, these ideas are not Japanese. They're Western. Mm. They're Western ideas of education, of physical education, of sport. And this is why Jigoro Kano is so important because he merges the traditional with the modern, right? Japan is going through that moment in history where um, 
you know, they have to rapidly modernize to keep up with the world. Like they go from being a feudal society to being a modern society in about 50 years, which is very, I mean, I mean, the Russian revolution had a similar movement there, but it's, it's very unusual for someone to move that rapidly towards modernization, right? And, and judo is an expression of that. Judo is, is an expression of, of that, the, 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 the combining of the traditional and the old and maintaining the Japanese character in the martial art but with a lot of Western values and ideas, you know, and, and our conception of martial arts today was created by Jigoro Kano. This is why it's not fair. It's not unfair to call him the father of modern martial arts, even though he didn't invent that much. He was just borrowing from a variety of schools, sumo wrestling and Western wrestling included. Jigoro Kano does create martial arts as we understand it today as a sport and practice for healthy individuals for the masses in general so one thing that you mentioned to me actually when we talk in portuguese about the the perception that people have about the samurai and jiu-jitsu and that you mentioned that to me that's something that you didn't know about it either and you found out through the studies can you uh, just expand more on that concept so, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about history, no matter how accurate you try to be and how skeptic you want to be, we all fall a victim to like these, these, you know, misconceptions and conventional wisdoms and preconceived notions. You know, if everyone repeats something, our rationale goes, it must be true. Because exactly. someone, and the older it is, the more sacred it becomes, like the more of a truth it becomes, because it's really old. That means if it's been unquestioned for 400 years, well, then it has to be true because all of those people in 400 years, someone would have exposed that. And sometimes that's not the case. You know, one misconception that we had as a team was that the samurais were responsible for creating the style of jiu-jitsu. And, you know, I, we actually had this in the film. We had to redo the entire intro at the beginning of the film because it was in there because it was an assumption, you know, but it was something we took for granted. We were so confident about that, you know, it made it into the film. And huge mistake. Uh, I sent a copy of a, a rough draft to Pedrera, and, uh, and he corrected me. Like the samurais have as much to do with you know jujitsu as the you know American Marines have to do with MMA. They may practice it, but that doesn't mean they created or invented it or played a role in their development. Like they may practice it. Like you know you're not going to send. And it makes true even medieval warfare, even though it was more face to face. You know, I don't think an arm bar is a good move for medieval warfare. Like when you think about it, like why would you want to arm bar someone in a battlefield? It sounds like a horrible idea. You wouldn't even arm bar someone in a nightclub, in a bar. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to arm bar someone in a battlefield where people have spears and swords? Like it's like it's, it's, a, it's a guaranteed way to get killed, you know. And, and when you start thinking about it, it makes sense. But they might have practiced some hand-to-hand -hand combat, even though it has little to nothing to do with what we practice today. I'm sure they had some skill in that regard. But it wasn't something that was the samurai played a large role in, right? Even though, you know, they were probably practitioners of it. They, I don't think it, they were the leading force. In terms of judo, you know, as I mentioned, like there were these rule schools, which were, you know, different styles. They varied dramatically. Some had strikes, some had weapons, some had throws, some specialized on the ground. Very much like we, consider, we call martial arts today. And they were referred to often as jujitsu schools, you know, and, and, and jujitsu is a very broad term. Jigoro Kano borrows from two jiu-jitsu schools or rule schools. Uh, he borrows from sumo, he borrows from wrestling, and he creates a style. And, you know, he later calls that style judo. It was originally not by Jigoro Kano, but it was referred to by other people as Kano jiu-jitsu. 
and you know later becomes known as judo he distanced himself from the name jiu-jitsu which he considers to be more archaic and it became associated with prize fighting fake fighting circus fighting you know uh, as the japanese spread around the world men like maeda are teaching around the world fighting for money goro Kano wants to distance himself from that sort of uh, um you know and view and, 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 and practice of martial arts so he rebrands his school judo and you know it had a more philosophical approach and to martial arts and it was less you know it was not something that aimed at making money it wasn't aimed at that it was aimed at really you know allegedly creating better individuals i, I think that they did that i think judo has had a very positive impact in the world you know overall like it's it is they have managed to maintain a lot of values and, and there's a philosophical cornerstone that exists in judo that Brazilian jiu-jitsu lacks. I don't see it in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I normally refer to Brazilian jiu-jitsu culture as the Hakuna Matata culture. Mm -hmm. you know, it's the, it's the flip-flop culture. It's the board shorts, it's the beach surf culture. You know, it's acai after practice, hang loose. It's more surf culture than it is Japanese. And we've lost that. We don't have that philosophical cornerstone that the dough has. We, we've, we, you know, IBJJF came along and organized a sport a little late, if you ask me. The fundamental difference between IBJJF and judo in that judo grows from a core. There's like the core martial art. I spoke to Raddy Ferguson the other day, and he's like, there's this canon of techniques that was kept intact through kata. And I've never seen kata under that light, but like that's what the kata is. There's a canon of techniques that is a core of the art. And then there's a sport, and then it expands from that, but the core remains intact. And on top of that, there are curriculums, there's structure, there are names. You can go visit any judo school in the world and they call the same moves the same thing. That doesn't even happen in gyms. Same city, the gyms call the same move different things. With, I mean, that happens with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has the opposite movement. It doesn't go from a core and expands. At first it expands and then it tries to create a core to organize a sport, right? IBJJF comes along later and it does that to a large extent. But it still misses a lot that judo has to offer, I feel like, in terms of philosophy and values and that are very, very ingrained in the judo culture. I see them less and less in, in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And now with the impact of the, pro, the attempt at making jiu-jitsu a professional sport, it's becoming more like pro wrestling. At some point, it already is more pro wrestling and boxing than it is judo, unfortunately. But it seems to be the direction that we're moving in. So now let's get into the chapter then – Japan start hating Brazil. So at that that moment, again, from the gecko, what misconception that that you're like, huh, I didn't know about that. From that transition, Japan, okay, now Judas arrive in Brazil. Um you know, when 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 the Japanese come over to Brazil, they're not they're not missionaries. You know, this is very obvious. Like there's I I mean, some people might disagree. Like they, some people say that they were Kodokan missionaries spreading the gospel of judo. You know, I, I, I don't believe that. I think there were immigrants looking for money. No one leaves home. No one leaves their friends. No one leaves their family. You know, even like, like religious missionaries, like Mormons and other religious missionaries, like they leave for a few years and they come back. They, don't, they want to go back home. People who leave and stay, they're doing it for financial reasons, for economic reasons. And they make sense. I and, mean, you know, I think that these Japanese were, they're enjoying a moment, you know, the original jujitsu boom in, uh, in, uh, in the world, you know, early in the 20th century after the rest of the Japanese war. There's a really good book on it called Craze. It's all available on Amazon. It talks about this jujitsu boom. 
and they're enjoying that moment. They're traveling the world. They're, you know, they're celebrities in the circus. They're getting attention. They're getting paid. And it's better than working in a, in a sugarcane field. It's better than working in a tomato field. You know, they're making money any way they can and teaching martial arts is a much better way of teaching. When Maeda leaves Japan, the term jiu-jitsu was still the term in vogue. Maeda, once he goes and makes it to Brazil, he never goes back to Japan. So he continues to use the term jiu-jitsu. And this is why a lot of the confusion comes from. Maeda would have taught something that Jigoro Kano was hiding from people, that he was teaching a different version of judo. That's why he called it jiu-jitsu because it was more martial art oriented. And Maeda was teaching judo. He was just calling it jiu-jitsu because when he left Japan, they were still calling it jiu-jitsu. It didn't come judo. It didn't become the word, a popular term until later. So he just stuck to the term jiu-jitsu for his whole life. But he's a classical Kodokan student, albeit not being a student of Maeda. That's important. He's not a student, I mean, of Maeda, of Jigoro Kano. He's not a student of Jigoro Kano. He's not a student of Tokuguro Ito. He's not a student of Yamashita. He's a student, I can't remember their name. I keep trying to remember. There are four names, four people who taught him. And this is, a, if, you, if you search 20 myths on Maeda, GTR, Global Training Report, it's going to come up. But like the 20 most popular myths on Maeda, um, and he had four instructors, the Kodokan instructors, but he's not a student of Jigoro Kano. Uh, but, you know, when, when, when they make it to Brazil, they're there for economic reasons. It's very clear. Maeda goes to Belém do Pará, not because for any other reason that Belém do Pará was a very wealthy city center. This is during the rubber boom. You got to remember, like World War I was, you know, raging, and Brazil was the one supplying rubber to all the allies. So Belém do Pará becomes a very wealthy city during this time period. That's when Maeda moves to Belém do Pará. We're talking 1915, 1916 here. So <clears throat> it was a very wealthy city uh, in Brazil at the time. So, you know, Ma Maeda is, he's a man looking for better life. He's enjoying life. From all accounts, he was, it's interesting because you get these accounts from, you know, the characters. And there's a story that goes in Belém do Pará. People that knew him would tell that he liked to gamble and he liked to drink and he liked to dress well. And he was a womanizer. And, you know, I, it makes me like him more because all of a sudden mm -hmm. you look at him as this saintly, you know, individual. He's normal. He's like a normal human. And it, may, it makes you like him more because it's fine to be human. It's fine to be flawed. I always disliked that approach that put Carlos and Julio on pedestals as like, you know, superhuman beings. And I much prefer the approach that talks about the good and the bad. Because I think that's real. You know, that's, that's how we are. We're not angels. We're not demons. We're, we're a mess, you know? We only, we only differ into the extent that we lie. We all lie. We're all wrong all the time. We all have misconceptions. We all do wrong things, you know? We vary to which degree we do these things, you know, to which degree we do good and to which degree we do bad. But there's no, there's this comic-like interpretation of people in history. Like, it's just so flawed and at least so many misconceptions, you know? So I, I love the Maeda that gambles. Like, you know, not that I gamble, but <laughs> <laughs> I live in Las Vegas. You shouldn't. You live in Vegas. <laughs> But it painted a very human face to him and to these Japanese. And I think that if Maeda could hear some of the debates that, you know, go around his name today, like he would just probably laugh and like, you guys are silly. Just shut up and train. You yeah. know, I think that's what he would say. And, and that's what comes across from a lot of these guys, like a very human character to most of them. Like they're just very, very normal people, very much like ourselves. They were not so different, you know, but, you know, history tends to put people on pedestals. Um, what else? I'm trying to think of something else. So one thing, they, because they started to travel different places in the world, right? But why do you feel that Brazil, that's, that's the one that really, because they went to Europe, they went to North America, you know, like, what exactly do you feel from the research or what you learned that Brazil uh, kind of stood out in a way 
tell us they like the weather, they like the place? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Well, U.S. and Brazil had been two large recipients of Japanese immigration early in the 20th century. After the 1924 Exclusion Act, you know, uh, Brazil becomes the largest recipient because U.S. puts a stop to Asian immigrants. And the rest was a very, very racist. Brazil was a racist country, still is in a lot of ways, but you know, like the U.S. puts a stop to Asian immigration in 1924, and then Brazil becomes the largest recipient. But till this day, I mean, you, you know, this Brazilian, Brazil has more Japanese descendants than Japanese in Japan. So many Japanese. There are cities in Sao Paulo where everyone speaks Japanese, and the newspapers, uh, the press, it's all Japanese, and there are schools that teach Japanese, you know. So um, the huge uh, influence uh, uh, of Japanese immigration, especially in Sao Paulo, you know, Belém do Pará as well, the Amazon as well. But it's an interesting question why. You know, I think that the early 20th century, the immigration had to do with economic reasons. Japan was not a wealthy country at the time. So these are immigrants looking for work. The ones that taught fighting, the new fighting, they would rather get a job teaching fighting than working in a, you know, in a plantation. Um, but I think that it might be aspects of Brazilian culture that they enjoy. You know, Brazil is very different from Japan. You know, and Japan is a very rigid society, very hierarchically structured discipline, you know, and, and I, I really admire that aspect of Japanese culture, but Brazil is very relaxed in that regard. So it's, it must be a nice break from not, not knowing True. that five minutes late, no one's going to get mad at you, you know? Um, I, I don't know, but, but I think it might be in just opportunities. Like Brazil was a booming country at the time and, you know, it, it rivaled the U.S. in some ways, even though it was still behind economically at the time. Brazil was, was, it, was a promise. It was a large country in the Americas and people perceived it as, you know, this is the new world. Like this is where life changing opportunities take place. So the Japanese were migrating to Brazil and in large numbers, in large, large numbers. And Maeda is interesting. Maeda, when he's in Belém do Pará, he's more involved for the rest of his life in Japanese immigration than he is in teaching and fighting. Like he's practically retired. This is why like Maeda's role is grossly exaggerated in, in terms of his role in the development of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because he doesn't really do that much. He teaches Jacinto Ferro, who in his turn teaches Carlos Gracie. And, you know, it, it's funny because we, we, we had a conversation with Hobson Gracie. And Hobson was, you know, you met Hobson. He's like super charismatic and he can talk for hours and he's so fun to listen to. But during the interview, we asked him, so what's the importance of Carlos Gracie for the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? And he goes like this. Who would Maeda be if it weren't for Carlos Gracie? He'd be a legend of the Amazon. And no one would have heard of him. And it was such a great point because it makes the case that it was Carlos who created Maeda and not Maeda who created Carlos. Hmm. Maeda is known today because of Carlos Gracie. Hmm. Uh, because even though he was famous at the time, I don't believe his name would have survived the 20th century. True. Someone like Carlos. I'll give you an example. Lyoto Mashita's father had to redo, this is in the 70s, 80s, I think. I'm not, don't quote me on the year. But they found Maeda's grave in shambles, Lyoto Mashida's father, in shambles in Belém do Pará. So he got together with this, uh, a group of Japanese university students who flew to Brazil. They raised the funds and they, they rebuilt a grave for Maeda because no one remembered Maeda. Maeda wow. became important later on in the 90s when they had to create a link between the present and the past. So now Maeda is important. Up to then, mm. it was not a huge part of the story. Like his grave was in shambles and no one cared. And they rebuilt his grave. And now he's like the most, probably the most popular Japanese immigrant in the history of, uh, of Brazilian, uh, Japanese immigration in Brazil. He's probably the most popular one. But that's largely because of Carlos Gracie and, and him using Maeda's name to, to, to help sell his brand of 
judo slash jiu-jitsu. So is there an estimate of the number of people that were involved in the beginning? There was some teaching from Aeda and and people were involved with that with that initial growth. How many people were taught? Is there any record of that? Idea? We don't know. We, well, says we can have an idea of the popularity based off of the press reporting it. Hmm. So I, there were events in Belinda Pará, and the press is reporting on these events, right? So that suggests that there's some level of, of you know, interest. Uh, anything Asian at that time was something very interesting to the world. Like this is, they're seen as exotic people. They're in the circus for the same reason, you know, like, you know, the circus has their acts of, you know, the exotic people, like a, woman, like a woman with a beard or the guy who can lift X amount of weight or the guy who can tame a tiger. Jiu-jitsu is part of that act. That's what, what jiu-jitsu is during that time. It's an act. So there's a, like a level of curiosity. As far as the number of practitioners, I can't imagine it being large. I don't think that, you know, today we, we really see martial arts as a means of educating our children. But at the time, I think there might have been aspects but of that but i don't think it would have been as developed as it is today like today we have you know it's widespread like martial arts will raise you know better children discipline confidence all that but i think at the time it was still an alien concept you know mm -hmm. it's I don't, i don't we know that a lot of japanese practice martial arts it was very common in japan a lot of them come to brazil so by default you know they come to brazil uh i always make this point because it does you know because we're we, we Initially, we were seen as an anti-Gracie documentary, and we, we've gone through huge lengths to change that and not be seen that way because we're challenging their narrative. But it's not diminishing their role. We're just adding to the story. You know, but my, one point I always make is, why don't we have Peruvian jiu-jitsu? Right? Plenty of Japanese in Peru, even though more in Brazil, but there's no Peruvian jiu-jitsu. Judo absorbed every other school that was teaching anything that resembled you know, the Kodokan curriculum because judo was the, the, the sport in vogue. It's an Olympic sport. Now it has government funding. It's widely popular, very prestigious. Right? It, it, they get absorbed everywhere. There are, there are Japanese teaching in France. There are Japanese teaching everywhere. Like why? They all get absorbed by judo, except in a small little niche in Rio de Janeiro because of the Gracie family, because of Carlos and Healy. They stuck to their version of jiu-jitsu, of judo, You know, like we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it this way, and we're gonna and they 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 survive. Like they almost die in the sixties. They were popular in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then they die in the 60s, 70s, 80s. They have a revival in the 90s. But I grew up in Brazil, Gustavo. I had never heard of jiu-jitsu until Horse Gracie. Now you were in Rio de Janeiro, maybe it was different. Rio and Manaus were like the two centers of jiu-jitsu in Brazil. Like there mm -hmm. was a strong presence there, but most places places in Brazil, jiu-jitsu was not something popular. Not at all. It's, it almost dies, but they stuck with it, you know, for better or for worse. You can make a case that maybe we would be better off had we been absorbed by judo. I would disagree. I like Brazilian jiu-jitsu as it is. I prefer the ground over stand-up, but, you know, some people maybe, you know, we, we don't know that. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of good things about judo that we, we did not keep, is my point. You know, it's, it's an interesting discussion, but, you know, it, there's, there's, there's no way you can take – The, the, the credit credit from Carlos and Helio, but they gave themselves credit over things they didn't do. They Got did it. revolutionize technique. That's not true. Did you take some heat because of that? Well, it hasn't been published yet. It hasn't been released. The, uh, 
the documentary, but you know, maybe people that did not like some of the things that are maybe you're bringing up. I mean, again, it hasn't been released yet. You know, we're recording this basically June of 2020, but so far. Yeah. Um, based off of interviews I've given, I get like messages every day. Most of them are, thank you. Congratulations. Keep it up. I can't wait. Like it's a very positive feedback, the vast majority. And then there's, it's funny cause I've been accused of being pro Brazilian. I've been accused of being anti-Brazilian, pro-American, <laughs> anti-American, pro-Gracie, anti-Gracie, pro-Fada, anti-Fada. <laughs> so it suggests that we're on the right track because if people are accusing of the fanatics, right? So when the fanatics are saying you're biased, that means you're somewhere, you know, you're somewhere yeah, yeah. in the right track. So, um, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, I think initially people were being more, were really thinking it was being like anti-Gracie piece and, it really isn't the intention, you know, and if it comes across that way, it's certainly not intentional, but there's uh, I think the, some of the historians have accused me of being like a little pro Gracie. They have seen the script and they feel, they feel like I'm, I'm giving Carlos and Hugo too much credit, you know, yeah. but I don't, I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I our, our team, we, you know, and I say this, you know, very, in, in a very genuine way. Like I, I don't have a dog in this fight. Like I don't, I don't want anything but the closest thing to the truth, you know, possible to come across in a film. Like, I don't want to diminish anyone, but, you know, as it was, it was incorrect. And you'd be surprised. People are very receptive to it. Like the Valenti brothers, you know, they're very uh, helio-oriented, of course. But, like, they, they were very open to it because they knew. Like, they, they have been researching this for a long time. And they knew that the, that the official narrative was incorrect. There's no Gracie Academy in 1925. There's no such thing. It was Donato's Academy. Carlos was an assistant instructor, and so was George, you know, like the role of Gio Amore, the role of George Gracie. George Gracie is fundamental. He's so important. No one remembers it because they didn't have 20 kids. And he was normal. He wasn't, he wasn't worried about a legacy. He wasn't worried about, like, creating a dynasty. Like, Carlos had that, that concern, you know. Like, he was a man with vision. you got to give him credit. Brilliant marketing. Very good understanding of PR for the time he was living in. But that's his real role, man. It's not... Mm-hmm. George was the fighter. George was the guy fighting anyone, anytime, anywhere at a time when Healy was winning medals swimming. You know, Healy was not a weakling individual. He was a very athletic individual. Like, and that's one of the biggest misconceptions of all, right? Well, it, it, it's, I mean, you know, I, I've seen people say, oh, but he used to get sick when he was younger. I'm like, everyone's yeah. sick. Yeah, but like, yeah. there are pictures of Healy in his youth and he looks jacked. I saw that, yeah. Very athletic for, especially at the time with the nutrition was not there, you know, like it was, it was, you know, you don't, you didn't see heavy people then. He didn't look fragile. Let's put it this way. Not look fragile. And he was busy. He was swimming for, I think Botafogo was a club he swam with. It was an elite club. Yeah. So yeah. It's not, not anyone makes it to that team unless you're an elite athlete, but it had to be sold that way. And we all benefited from it. What's important with that marketing argument is to acknowledge that they did not create that. That was a marketing plot that was the, ja- the very first Japanese to start teaching jiu-jitsu around the world were using it after Japan wins the war with Russia in 1904-1905. The Russo-Japanese War gives Japan tons of credi- credibility around the world because the world begins to perceive Japan as tiny little island that was seen as backwards, still like a feudal society, Right? All of a sudden, defeating the largest country in the world. It's a European nation. It's a modern army. No one was expecting that to happen, but Japan wins the war. 
So what comes across is a marketing plot that goes like along these lines. The small can defeat the large with technique. So that is a theme in martial arts. So every school in the world, and not just Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, every martial arts school in one way or another has their own spin on this marketing scheme, right? It's a very, very old one. So when the Japanese are traveling the world, by the way, with lever, good lever, you can defeat a large opponent. So this is not new. This is not a new marketing. Like if you put this, if, you, if you're a school owner and you have this on your website, it's not something you created. This is at least 100 years old. Uh, but it worked very successfully. And, you know, I mean, it worked for me too. So, the, the, you know, Corian was very shrewd in selling jiu-jitsu that way to the American audience. If he sold Helio as a successful athlete, it would have been harder to sell Brazilian jiu-jitsu to the audience. True. Is it a hoist Gracie walks into a cage and you can see he's skinny? That's part of the appeal. Like if he were like, you know, buff, like Hickson's more athletic, it doesn't sell as well. I think the skinny individual sells a lot better than the the the, the buff one, you know, the, the muscular one. And it worked to our favor. Like I benefit from this, you benefit from this, we all do. But at any rate, it is a lie. Mm-hmm. Got it. Now, how long is the window? I'm saying for your documentary, from what year? Is, it starts the research until what point you guys stopped? It was, that was one of the big problems. We didn't know where to begin. You know, like we were going to start with Maeda's trip, but we feel that the story would be very incomplete unless we spoke about how Kodokan was, came about. Got so it. We're talking about the origin of Kodokan. I'm like, well, and then that's, that's a documentary in its, of itself. That's Absolutely. That's a story. And, so we decided to start a story like we're going to touch on, you know, we, that's, we're actually, that's the part we're working on right now because the rest of the film is ready. It's the, 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 the first chapter of the film is the part we got stuck in because it, it's not easy. You know, it's, there's a lot to say. Uh, it's, we're leaning towards starting with Commodore Perry's, um, you know, basically points the cannons at Ito and forces the Shogun to open the ports to Western capitalism. He basically goes, you either do business with us or we're going to bombard you back into the Stone Age. And the Shogun, of course, relents, opens the ports. It was his second trip to Edo. The first one, he just tried to be diplomatic. The Shogun gave him the boot. The second time, he comes back with a fleet. And he says, you either open up or we're going to bomb you. And that could be called the beginning of the story because the invasion of Western ideas is, is, is part of Judo. Judo exists because of the influence of Western ideas, right? Like the educational, physical educational sport. These are not Japanese feudal concepts. They're Western, right? The philosophy of Herbert Spencer, who was an educator. And, you know, I actually didn't know who Herbert Spencer was there recently. And I, I did some digging and learned a little more about him and his ideas. And you can see how much he influenced Judo. And this is a man that, you know, his writing is aimed towards education, not towards martial arts in any way, but Jigoro kind of borrows a lot from Western ideas. Western wrestling. Kataguruma's yeah. wrestling movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I used to think that the wrestlers had taken it from Judo, because in my head, Judo has to be older. But like, no, Judoka's got it from wrestling. And probably other things, too. You know, probably other moves. Uh, Western wrestling is much, much older. So, you know, um, and that's kind of where our story begins. Like, it starts with that, the, 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 the the events that led to the Miji restoration. And then we end the film with the Kimura Helio fight because we feel at that point. That what year was that? 53, 54, 51, maybe. I can't remember now. Like I, I got so many dates in my head, it's hard to remember. Like early 50s. And 
the Helio Kimura fight, um, it mar- I mean, at that point, it's very obvious to us the split between judo and jiu-jitsu and what we would later call Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? Like, I mean, there was still some similarities, but, you know, we could have moved all the way to the, the exception of the Guanabara Federation in 1967, which could be called as like, you know, at that point they have a rule set that is no longer the same as the judo rule set. But there wasn't anything going on between the Kimura fight and the Guanabara Federation. So it was like, what are we going to talk? We just like mention it, but like, yeah, we, we wanted to end with a boom. So the boom was a Kimura Helio fight and that's where we wrap it up. So we're, we're you know, we're really, it's a hundred year span, you know, mid 1850s all the way to 1950s. From then onwards, the history is less controversial. Once Carlson takes over and then, you know, like that from that period onwards, from the 60s onwards, we know a lot more about the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's less controversial and it's, to me, it's less interesting as well. Mm-hmm. So with the trips that you did, what are some of the special moments for you? Like, so you can say, you can pick some of the places, a special moment in Japan, a special in Brazil. What do you think? Um, I really enjoyed talking to Hobson Gracie and um, his charisma, man. Like he was, he's the archetypical karaoke man. He was smooth talking. He was cunning. Like he was like good game, man. Like he's hitting on the waitress. He's like 90 something years old. And he's making moves. on the <laughs> like, man, He's got like black belt game. It was just, he's a very charismatic guy. Like he, it's, it's easy to like him. He's easy to like him. In, in the terms of like you want to be around him and listen to him. But then, you know, I'm not saying he's an angel, you know, but he's, he's a very charismatic person. It was, it was, he's like fun to listen to. Um, at one point I asked him for life advice and I was expecting something like, I was asking all these grandmasters life advice, all of them. Like, and most of the answers are what you would expect. Spend more time with your children, love more, don't worry about, you know, accumulating all this money, travel the world, live your life. It's the standard advice you get from any, anyone who's about to leave this world, right? And when I ask Hobson, he gave me an answer I could have never expected. He goes quiet for a second and he goes, in life, you have to be inconsequential, you know? And then when he tells you his life stories, you, you understand he lived his life at a very, very fast pace. Like he even said it, like I never expected to live this long. I never thought I'd become the patriarch of the Gracie family. I thought I was going to die young because you can see he was such an intense individual that he lived life to the fullest, you know, very, very rapidly, very intensely, you know. And even though I, you can disagree with his advice and philosophy of living life irresponsibly, but there is, there's, there, there's, there's, a, um, there's, there's a lesson there. I think there's something to be said. You know, I, my, my best memories in life were not planning and doing things sort of, even jujitsu, jujitsu was reckless. If you're 16 and you're playing martial arts all day, that's reckless. A responsible thing to do is to get a job. Mm-hmm. I develop a career. Martial arts is, it's, it's irresponsible. We think, but like my irresponsibility, the irresponsibility of my youth led me to where I'm at today and I'm a perfectly happy person. So, you know, I, there, there was some, there was some, there was some wisdom there is my point. Armando Reed sure. was a lot of fun to talk to. I feel that, you know, throughout these, you know, studying the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and learning more about these characters and spending so much time with these grandmasters, I was failing to see anyone that I felt was someone, you know, we could really call a grandmaster of the sport in a, in a, 
in a human way, in a philosophical way, in a, in a way where like, you know, you, you could see something that to be learned other than techniques and life experiences. And it was, I think BJJ lacks that, you know, I, I, it lacks the, the dough, you know, we are the Hakuna Matata culture, you know, the Borshore culture, like we are the surf culture. Like we, we don't have that in jiu-jitsu, we're missing. We don't, we just, we really don't, you know, it's unfortunate. But in Armando, I saw someone that was very, he was very happy, very content in life, best vocabulary i have ever seen on any portuguese speaking person out of 10 words he'd use he used a word in portuguese i had never heard before and i i, I think i got a pretty decent portuguese vocabulary he was schooling me very i think i thought he was a, he came across as someone who was at peace with life and was genuinely a good person and someone i would want to spend more time and learn from like hobson was fun to hang out with because he's such a great storyteller but it's not someone you would want to emulate in life you know, Armando was someone that I felt like I would want to emulate, you know, like I, if I, if I, cause I'm out, we are going to be them in the future, Gustavo. Mm-hmm. The question is, are you going to be one or the other? Who, which one are you going to be? You're going to be a red belt one day. And I wonder, I, I spend a lot of time, I think about who am I going to be when I'm 80, if I make it that far. And I hope I'm more like Armando. You know, I, I enjoy spending time with him. He was, a, I think he's a truly, truly a great person, like a beautiful person. You know, his hero was Mahatma Gandhi and he tried to emulate Gandhi which I think is a very good reference. Uh, I really wanted to speak to Midi, George Midi. Mm-hmm. Was, it was very unfortunate. He would not speak to us out of humility. Everyone that knew Midi would tell us that Midi was the real deal, man. Like this was a true grandmaster. He left jujitsu. He left the Grace Academy for judo. Uh, many people speculate that he, he had a huge role in the development of Brazilian jiu-jitsu because he lived in Japan for many years, had trained with Kimura allegedly. And, and he would, he would have brought a lot of techniques from Kosen Judo to Brazil. And he would have ignited a movement of, like, you know, technical betterment of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the time. And remember, when we spoke to Hobson, Flavio Bering, and Carlos Gracie Jr., they all said they didn't know what a triangle was until the late 70s. Hmm. So, like, George B.D. allegedly would have played a role in, in, the, in you know, bettering the, 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 the arsenal of techniques in, in Brazil. So, but he wouldn't speak to us. He's a very humble person. And quote unquote, he wouldn't speak to us because he was a no one and had nothing to say. And here's like probably the most interesting of all characters. And he really felt in a time where everyone's desperate for attention, mm-hmm. the raving narcissists, you know, it is refreshing to see that someone that actually has something to say and teach doesn't feel that way about himself. Right. And he actually does. Like when the Kardashians of the world have taken over and everyone think that Takeshi 69 is a is a, someone to emulate you know and these people have become our cultural references and it's refreshing to see that the people actually have something to say don't feel that they have to say it other than through their own work I think that if you press me and you ask them why won't you say anything I think he would have answered that his life work is is that's it like that's his that's what he, all he has to say is, is is what he did in his life so those are people that really stuck, struck a chord with me. Uh, Yuki Nakai, the interview with Yuki Nakai mm, was that's cool. Because Yuki Nakai is a man that comes from Kosen Judo, fought Shuto. Uh, he has an early experience with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, fighting Hicks and Gracie in the Valitudo Open of 95. He was in my division in 1997 uh, at the Worlds. Yeah. He lost. He lost in the, I thought I was going to go against him. He lost in the quarters, and then I beat the guy who beat him in the semi. And, and he's such an interesting character, Gustavo, because, you know, he is the president of the Japanese Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. 
I just I just love how that echoes the hmm. sound of it. it sounds amazing to me. But he um he's such an interesting guy because he is the ambassador for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it is it is it's, it has a make it suffers a, somewhat of a makeover in Brazil, if not technically at least culturally. But it comes back different. It's not the Kosen Judo. It's not Judo anymore. It's similar. They still saw Judo, but it wasn't the same thing. But he described, you know, witnessing Hoist Gracie and later Hickson and the, the, watching the jiu-jitsu boom of the mid-90s. And he described it first was a feeling of surprise. He was surprised because they had no idea that Brazilians were practicing a variation of Judo. They had no idea that had been like all the things that were going on in Brazil. Like Kimura is not big in Japan. Kimura is known as a pro wrestler in Japan. Like the, the whole Helio Kimura fight was big in Brazil and for jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu history. But in Japan, no one really paid attention to it. Um, you know, and then he said, other than surprise, it was fear. Like they were shocked at how good the Brazilians were on the ground. They were very, very skilled on the ground. No, no one can dispute Hickson's technique. No one can dispute the technique of the fighters that were coming out of Carlson Gracie's gym. You know, so they were really surprised with all that. But then he said that there's a feeling also of like, you know, melancholy and, and nostalgia because the, he had realized that they had lost something very special. That they, that Japan had neglected something that they had it. Mm-hmm. Like these techniques that to us are somewhat new existed really early on in Kosen Judo's history, De La Hiva, X-Card. They had all that, but they neglected it and they forgot what they had. And it was almost like a, it had to be exported back to them for them to be able to appreciate something they had always had. And they were actually pioneers at Brazilians were not pioneers in this regard. Brazilians followed suit and later they would pass the Japanese, but the Japanese came up with it much first. And, you know, it's just sad, man. Like it's, uh, uh, it's, um, it's, um, it, it, was, it was, the way he described it just made it sound very beautiful. Like it was sad that they had lost after so long and judo had allowed BJJ to exist. Like I, I actually honestly believe that if Jigoro Kano had allowed more time on the ground and more and allowed foot locks and allowed shoulder locks, there would have been no Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. True. There had been no space for us to exist. We would have been absorbed because you don't differ enough to be something new. Man, this is a huge project. What did you say? Some of the struggles that you had no idea of course there's many but you're like oh i had no idea this could have happened during the project and how you guys dealing with some of the struggles that came along and it's something new for you you know you're you're a white belt in managing this this whole thing you know what i mean being the the producing and learning as you go so what do you say some of the biggest struggles of this uh, this project i mean the, the the raising the money was actually fairly easy. I mean, like, Mayabek Casilla was very forthcoming. He was very supportive. I thought it was going to be a lot harder. Like, right away, I didn't even finish the presentation. He's like, boom, we're in. Uh, filming was fun, even though it was hectic. We were sleeping for, like, two weeks straight in Brazil. We were sleeping an average of four hours a night, average. It was, it was a, such a rush because everyone had to get back home, and everyone had, you know, we had a very tight schedule in Brazil. Japan was tight, but just not as tight. But I actually enjoyed it. I loved every second of it. Like I was like to me, those memories are some of the best memories of my life. Just traveling to Brazil, visiting Maeda's grave in the Amazon, going to the middle of the, the nowhere in Brasilia to interview Armando and meeting Joalberto Barreto and meeting all these legends of the sport. Me going to the Kodokan and interviewing, you know, wow. the curator for their museum inside the Kodokan, which is a privilege that very few people have ever had. Like 
they granted us access to their museum to film, which is something they never do. Uh, but you know, the, the, the real hardship came after we were done filming. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, that's when, like, first of all, we couldn't sit on a script. We just couldn't put our finger on, like, what, what do we leave out? Because we, we have enough material for 12 episodes, more. What do we leave out? What do we emphasize? Like, you know, and I think the biggest, a lot of it is just, you know, a lot of back and forth. And, you know, me and the team, we haven't always met eye to eye. We have many disagreements and it's gotten very heated. It's almost fallen apart a few times because of differences, you know, and it always goes, you know, Robert doesn't know anything about film and, but, you know, like there are deadlines that, that weren't met and there were things that I feel that are very relevant to history that were, you know, were left out because, you know, like there's a concern for, the problem with film is this, if you're writing academic work, it's all about the facts. You don't have to sound pretty. You just relay the facts in an intelligible way, right? When we're talking about film, now you have this entertainment aspect. That's why, for example, a book like Shock, it doesn't have to be entertaining. It's informative. It's not meant to be entertaining. It's not written to be entertaining. You want to entertain yourself, you, you read a novel, you read Hemingway, you read Shakespeare, you read something that is entertaining, right? It's meant to, you know, give you pleasure. Whereas, like, academic work is, and a film is meant to give you pleasure, but it's a doc historical documentary. Right. And finding a balance between the aesthetic side of things and making it watchable, fun to watch, entertaining and informative is not always easy. Right. So I think I tend to think more like a historian, like to me, if it's pretty or not, is irrelevant. Is it is it informative and is it teaching people? All right. That's what I'm looking at. But if I had it my way, I'd be boring. I honestly believe that. And on the other end, you have guys who are more worried about, like, let's tell a story that is digestible to the viewer and they can actually appreciate and it's going to sell and everyone's going to love it. Let's not make it boring, right? Which is valid point. But if there's no history, then we're just retelling, we're just redoing Gracie in action. That's what basically what we're doing. If there's no history to it, like, what exactly are we doing? So finding a, a, a balance between these two things is, was, was very has been very very difficult you know uh it's something to still struggle with and that has been single-handedly the biggest hiccup i think we're i think that these these things can turn out to be a strength if well balanced they can they can be a strength and i think what's coming across is something that is very very beautiful to watch like as far as like the like uh, uh, our videographer steve he's very very talented like he's got some really cool shots you know, I really like his work. Um, but, you know, we don't always agree on everything. Sometimes, like, for example, I'll give an example off the top of my head. There's a match between Gio Mori and Carlos Gracie. That was everything points to that match being a fake match. They fought three times. One of them was a demo, not a real fight. And two other fights were allegedly real fights, but they're very likely fake fights, fixed fights for selling ticket purposes. If a fight is real, it doesn't sell. They're not, especially for an uneducated audience in the late 1920s in Sao Paulo, right? So you have to fix things to make it more engaging, right? They fight twice, two fake fights. They're both draws. Um, you know, a few months later, you know, after they are enemies in Sao Paulo, Carlos Gracie is acting as Gio Mori's manager in Rio de Janeiro between a fight, a fight for a, between Gio Mori and Manuel Fernandes. So Carlos Gracie is the manager arranging the fight. So they're enemies in the Sao Paulo press, they're friends in the Rio press, right? A, few, a little time after that, he has a fallout with Carlos, right? Carlos was a man of many enemies. And Gio Mori goes to the press and goes, listen, our fights, our fights were all fake. 
I was just playing with Carlos because his father had convinced me. His father had told me we were going to make more money if we faked fights. And then we had a buildup for a third match that never took place, right? So Joe Mori is not too happy about that. He has a fallout with Carlos. And it's believable because you got to remember, Joe Mori is a Kodokan black belt with international experience, much like Maeda, to travel the world fighting. He was the biggest name in the Sao Paulo scene at the time. He was quoted in the press in 1936 as being the biggest jiu-jitsu name in Brazil at a time where Maeda was still alive. You know, he's a successful grappler. Carlos Gracie had a limited experience in Belém do Pará and hadn't grappled in eight years. The idea that he would go toe-to-toe with Joe Mori is highly, highly improbable, right? On top of that, and to reinforce that, and this word disagreement, Carlos Gracie's father, Gaston Gracie, was a circus owner. We know that. He was a um, fight manager, so he knew sales. We're talking a circus owner and, a, and, and a, a, a fight manager. He knew sales. He was also a brothel owner, right? And Hayla Gracie mentions this in a biography. So this, is not a, this is not a secret, right? You, you own the brothel, whatever. I, I thought that mentioning those things was relevant because it goes to show that this is a man with vision to sell tickets, and that reinforced the case for Gio Mori telling the truth, that in fact his matches with Carlos were fake. They disagree. Like, oh, why are you trying to attack the guy? Well, I'm like, not so much. I'm trying to portray aspects of his personality, of what he did for a living that are important into reinforcing what Jewel Mori was saying, which is very, very likely to be the truth. So we couldn't agree on it, right? Uh, let's remove the brothel owner because that's not relevant to the history of jiu-jitsu. You're just attacking him. I was just concerned that we're going to slander the main man's name. I'm like, he's dead for a long time. It's true. It's in Halo's biography. We're not, it's not a family secret. You know, this, for example, so we can get into heated battles of like little, you know, intricate stuff like that, that for most people listening, it's like, it's not even that important. It really isn't. But it's easy to get, go down the rabbit hole and you know, get into arguments over things that we don't agree on. And, and, but I think we, for, for to a large extent, we have managed to, you know, solve a lot of these issues. And we, we've never made so much progress. I really think we'll finish before the end of the summer, which is something we have promised to fans. And I feel bad promise. I feel like I've been promised this film for so long. And I do feel somewhat guilty. I feel like I have a debt towards the community at this point. But I think the main thing is that we have this concern with doing something that is archival, yeah. that future generations can reference 50 years from now, right? I always say this, we, we are in the Goldilocks position, right? Before, not possible. After, not possible. Because the masters wouldn't have been dead. And before, there was no research. We found a happy middle between the research being available and the grandmasters being alive. It is within that happy middle that we found ourselves. Accidentally, it was not intentional. But this documentary would have not been possible 10 years ago, and it will not be possible 10 years from now. So we really think we're going to do the, the, the archival film that will you know, help retell the history of BJJ in a more unbiased way. Beautiful. And for all the listeners, we're getting close to the end of the interview. And if you've been listening to, this is episode 102, man, I can't even believe you're in a, episode nine. So um, I usually create a content after the interview or do my final thoughts. But I feel that this, this is the first episode that I'm not going to create one because, uh, man, all the information that you give, I don't think there's a point of me trying to do one final thought and then just give my opinion to you, just stating the things that you, you saw, your experience, and you, and you lived. And that, so with that, I don't think there's a point of me doing a, uh, a final thoughts because you already, you, know, there's, you already gave so many interviews. People want to really learn about 
about this, man. You can go so many of your interviews and, and dive in more, which is awesome. So it's an incredible job. And if you have to su uh, summarize this experience in one word, tough to say, but any, any word that comes to your mind, this whole ride of, man, traveling, covering, it's a, such a life experience, you know. It's goes so beyond just your jujitsu career as a teacher. You know, what do you think? Um, just a more this is a quote that that you know just came to mind. It goes, um, I'm trying to remember. It's a Mark Twain quote. I'm trying to remember here. What has to do with like you know when when. Uh, now, okay, I remember. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story, all right? And I disagree with that. I used to agree with that. That was a, one of the greatest quotes. And, you know, I actually, I dislike that quote now because it doesn't apply all the time. Hmm. The history of jiu-jitsu is far more interesting than the, 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 the narrative we had. It's, it's much richer. Like, there's so many more layers to the history of jiu-jitsu. It makes it far more interesting than what we had been told. So, you know, a key word would be, you know, stick to the truth. Like, the truth can't be unbiased. You know, academics don't like to use the word truth because in history, you don't have the truth. You have a version of events. You, know? you have many versions. They're all conflicting. Sometimes they're not. But normally, a lot of times they're conflicting. But we have the truth as a north, and that should be our north, you know, the truth. And if, it's, and if you don't like it, then you're the one to have a problem. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's like someone attacks you, and, you don't, and it's true. It's like someone saying, Rob, you know, you got a big head and I get really angry. Well, I'm the one with the problem. It's the truth. You, know? <laughs> you shouldn't get offended. You know, if someone says something about you and it's true, why should you be offended? It's the truth. You're the one who's not okay with it. You know, and yeah. someone out there is not okay with the truth of how BJJ came about. And they're the ones with the issue and not, not us. You know? That's what came across to me. Like it's, it's one of the things that jumped at me other than, you know, many others, but that was, that was one that reinforced something I've always believed in. Right on, man. Robert, thank you so much, man. This is a, a unique episode because I, as you already know, maybe you'll have people who are listening to the podcast for the first time. But if you're listening to the first time, this is the first time that you're dedicating an episode to that, just to talk about the history of jiu-jitsu. We always talk about entrepreneurship, life, a little bit of jiu-jitsu. And I think this is great, man, for everyone that train some people start training this year last year you know they don't know anything about anything you know and you bring in that clarity to everyone to the world man it's an incredible uh project and i can't wait man i can't wait to watch it yeah thank you gustavo thank you like we we blew through our marketing budget <laughs> it's expensive so we're doing it organically like i i think it's unlikely that big news outlets will support us so it's organic. It's people like you. It's like the everyday practitioner. So we have a trailer soon. I'm going to ask people to repost as much as they can because that's our marketing. And I, I've wasted so much on my, not wasted, let me rephrase that. I've spent so much time doing this. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's not a money project, Gustavo. This is a passion For project. For sure. I know. Totally get it. If we break even and we're able to pay back the investor, I'll be happy. So I do ask the community support because this is really something for the BJJ community. Don't copy. I know you can, it, someone's going to rip it off the, yeah. the siding. I'm like, man, like let at least try. This is a stranger who walks into jujitsu and says he loves it so much that he wants to give us something to watch and understand our history. You really want to deprive the guy of his investment. I think that's messed up, you know, but you know, people are free to do whatever they want, I suppose. But 
you know, we're asking people to support, you know, and really help spread the word and make this, uh, um, I, I think you, you don't have a sense of self if you don't understand your history. Gustavo Dantas is Gustavo Dantas because he has a history. It starts in Rio and then he goes to Las Vegas. And he used to train with, you know, Steve De Silva and John Lewis. And then he met Robert Drysdale as a teenager. And then, you know, and then he went on to Arizona. It became a very, just so many, it's, you, you are who you are because you know where you came from. And then you know where you are, you know where you stand, you have a sense of future. You don't know your past, you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are, and you have no idea where you're going. And I think that we need to remind ourselves who we are and where we came from so we have a better understanding of where the sport, you know, should be going moving forward. Right on, dude. Thank you so much. And all the listeners, keep supporting suggestions that you have, or even different, maybe unique topics that you want to bring it up. That would be something that I might start to implement in podcasts too. Always evolving. I've been doing some of my, now my podcasts in Portuguese, talking more about dedicated to competition, but I still, I love talking about entrepreneurship, life and business. I love that. And that will continue the mission of the podcast to inspire, impact and improve people's lives, bringing guests that are going to inspire in some way, bring information and here we're not here like we were talking about it not so much like to entertain people it's just educate share experience and people can if they're listening if you're listening to this on your way to work or you're running or whatever and you're getting some information this is going to be here uh it's going to be online forever you know some some people might be listening this in 10 years from now say oh wow they recorded this when the coronavirus was going on <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. so this is going to be forever and robert thank you so much brother Appreciate it. Thank you, Gustavo. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Goose. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.